the Living Finks from the band Boss Fink from their album RPM. Look them up on Facebook or at Double Crown Records. Let them know that you heard the song on episode 232 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, writer-producer Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. I'm glad to have you here, and I'm excited because we are still talking with my friend, my fellow co-host over at 1951 Down Place, Casey Criswell, about the film Daleks, Invasion Earth 2150. It's from 1966 from director Gordon Fleming. It is the second of two Peter Cushing films in which the master, okay, not the Doctor Who master, but the master Peter Cushing plays the master's nemesis, even though the master's not in he plays Doctor Who, and it's fun. It's a great ride, and I had a great time chatting with Casey about this film. Now, in the previous episode, in 231, I asked Casey a number of pointed questions about the differences between this Doctor Who and the Doctor Who from television. Because, and please don't turn off your iPod when I say this, I haven't watched an episode of television Doctor Who. The one Doctor Who thing that I've seen is the 1990s made-for-TV movie for Fox in which Eric Roberts plays the master and Paul McGann played the doctor. That's all I've got. That's all the who that I have in me. But Casey made up for it. He's a big fan of Doctor Who. And by the time we were done talking about this movie, I think we were both fans of the film. But we're going to get to that here in a second. I do want to mention that I've read recently that Peter Cushing wasn't a big fan of these movies. However... I went on to YouTube, and I just for fun typed in Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 AD, and I found a clip of Robert Osborne from TCM introducing the film from when it showed on Turner Classic Movies. First, it's kind of fun to watch Robert Osborne talk about a science fiction movie. But secondly, in his intro, and specifically his outro after the film, he mentions that Peter Cushing actually had a good time making these movies, that he really enjoyed the role. I hope that's true, because I had a good time watching him play the role. Peter Cushing is known for the bad guy so many times. You know, Dr. Frankenstein, what he did in Twins of Evil, all those Hammer films, even in Star Wars as Grand Moff Tarkin. It was fun to see him play, as I keep calling him, the opposite of a mad scientist in Daleks Invasion Earth 2150. Now, we also had some feedback from a couple of different listeners I'm going to sit on that. We're not going to get that this week. You're going to get it next week on Monster Kid Radio just because of time and things going on here at Monster Kid Radio headquarters. So if you've called in, Steve or Joe, uh, stay tuned because you'll hear your voicemails next week on the show. If anybody is joining us or didn't listen to our Green Slime episodes, those voicemails are about the Green Slime episode. So go back into the archives at monsterkidradio.net, listen to those episodes, or maybe even go watch those movies and then come back next week for that. In the meantime, we're going to talk some more with Casey Criswell about Daleks Invasion Earth 2150 AD right after this. Twins of Evil and Hands of the Ripper. Double evil shock hits with the most fearsome females in horror history. Twice the spine-chilling, heart-stopping terror. Twins of Evil and Hands of the Ripper. Rated R under 17, not admitted without peril. Hammer Film Productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re-releasing new and classic film titles. 
1951 Down Place is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey. Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer Horror, the engaging storytelling, and amazing period films. Joining him is Derek. Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. A podcast about Hammer? I don't want to be the one to cross Tony Stark. This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes, and other information about these classic films. 1951 Down Place can be found in iTunes or their website, www.1951downplace.com. Oh, so it's not Justin Hammer. 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Beyond the bright lights, the innocent pleasures, there lies another world. The sinister world of Dr. Diablo. The real torture gun. It is not for the faint of heart. What you find there will be more terrifying, more horrendous than your deepest, darkest dreams. Who has the courage to try it? You, Jack Palance. Have you the courage to face what the fates have in store for you? You, Burgess Meredith, as the devil incarnate. What horror will you next reveal? You, Beverly Adams, what lies beyond your dreams to bedevil your future? The Torture Garden. Many people walk the length of its terror. No. This is the writer who shields the secrets of immortality. Did you know that there are ways to raise the dead? The rich man who'd sooner part with his life than his wealth. The money. The torture garden. It's where the devil calls the tune to play a concerto of fear. So the movie itself, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the film and some of the things that we liked, maybe some of the issues that we had. There is no real introduction. This really feels like just another story for Doctor Who. 
Yes. And it did come out the year after the first film where we do get to meet Doctor Who and, and learn that he is a human scientist. And we don't get any of that in this outside of a, a brief conversation with the policeman and Doctor Who's family, I guess, in the TARDIS. Yeah. Either right before or right after. I guess it's right after the opening credits. And I think as a standalone film, it kind of misses an opportunity to reintroduce us to the Doctor Who character. Yeah. And, you know, especially, like you said, it was only a year apart then, but if they're trying to bring people into the fold and get this out there, you'd think that they would give them some more backstory to, you know, in case those people missed that first movie. Right. Well, I don't know how well the films did. Uh, Bernard Cribbins kind of implies that they did really well. So maybe it was just assumed that everybody had already seen it and knew what was going on with Doctor Who. Before we get into the the story itself, though, I did skip over something I wanted to discuss briefly, or at least mention. You and I, we hang out with the Hammer films. Yes. This film is produced by some people that are very important to the Hammer film story, even though they never really worked for Hammer. This was produced by the people who would go on to be known as Amicus. Ah, nice. And uh, Milton Sabutsky and Max Rosenberg were kind of sort of instrumental in getting Hammer thinking about doing their Frankenstein film to begin with. Oh, nice. So without those guys, we wouldn't have Hammer the way that we know it now. So it's interesting to see that connection here as well. So not just having Casey on the show, there's a real Hammer <laughs> Films connection. There, yeah, and to go along with that real Hammer Films uh, connection, especially in the producing side of it, mm-hmm. that's one thing that stood out to me. This movie feels very Hammer in style. It does feel 60s Hammer. It feels bigger to me. It feels kind of more epic in some spots. Yeah. But the way they use the sets, the set yeah. design, it feels like that. The score really stands out as something that feels hammer. Uh, <laughs> oh, that score. Yeah. <laughs> that score is something else. But, yeah, it really felt like a hammer production. So, Is that because we've just watched so many hammer films, or is that just how things were in the U.K. at that point? I don't know. Yeah. Could, in my mind, just automatically assumes at this point, if it comes out of the 60s, it was hammer. Oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Or it could be that I see Peter Cushing and I just automatically go into hammer mode. <laughs> That's quite possible. That, yeah, that that is true. All right, so yeah, the cops the cop ends up in the the police box in the TARDIS because he was the victim of some criminals who are knocking off a diamond shop and it just didn't work out. So he goes <laughs> running for the police box, goes running in, and hey, it's the TARDIS. Yeah, he got beat up a bit and fell yeah. out of the door. Whoops. Which is not an uncommon way for people to be introduced to the doctor. Is that pretty yeah. common? Is that the trope? Is this- not necessarily falling in the front door of the TARDIS, but they a lot of times stumble into him. Okay. That was fairly uh, standard for the universe. The movie takes place, or at least starts, in what was then modern day, I assume, you know, the mid-60s. But after uh-huh. the opening credits, we are, what, in 2150, where the title comes from. And apparently London has just been overrun by Daleks at this point. Which is what Daleks do. They come and conquer and they destroy all. And they try to enslave as much as they can. (laughs) And Tom the Bobby takes most of this in stride. Again, I'm still stuck on that point that I'm hung up on that a little (laughs) bit. I feel like he just, oh, we're in 2150? Oh, that's terrible. Okay, now let's go on an adventure together. Yeah. He, He really kind of buys the reality of a situation pretty quickly. Yeah, he never has any kind of a freak out moment or anything like that. It's just like, well, all right, let's do this. 
especially <laughs> especially since London now looks like to him what London probably looked like about 20 years ago for him. Yeah. You know, <laughs> because it looks like it's been bombed out, like it's been in the middle of a war, like a world war, yeah. you know. But he takes it all in stride and the world is overrun by Daleks. It takes us a long time to realize why the Daleks are doing what they're doing. There is a plan. There's a yes. point, a purpose to what we're doing here. And I feel like this film packs a lot into its story. It really does feel a little more epic than, say, like your standard Hammer Fair from the time, because there's a lot going on here. I feel like this actually could have been expanded into a, a miniseries. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. And that, But that's not uncommon with Doctor Who storylines either when they're facing their big beds. There's always a lot of world-conquering things like that going on. They're always on the brink of disaster or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's what makes Doctor Who cool, because he's the one person that can come in and solve that stuff. Well, Doctor Who doesn't have to work alone in this, even though his family's separated from him pretty quickly and feels pretty inconsequential to the story. Yeah. There is a, a sect, uh, a group of human survivors, resistance, you know, the resistance force resisting the, the Daleks. And we get to see another one of our hammer mainstays, Andrew Kier. Yes. He was excited. This was the only time I think they've really worked together on screen outside of, I think there was like one other thing that they might've done together, but it was great to see those two together, him and Cushing. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, at one point, Andre Morel was going to be in that role, which would have been great because we loved those two together in Hound of the Baskervilles. But, right. you know, to have Andrew Keir, you know, a quater mass. Yeah, it was exciting. Yeah, involved in a Doctor Who story, which was great. You know, he's one of the resistance fighters, one of the, the rebellion. I found it interesting that the leader of the rebellion was in a wheelchair. Yeah, yeah I mean, there were some interesting things in here. And, like, as far as, the, like, standard Doctor Who tropes in these mm-hmm. stories, the companion stuff, like you said, they were kind of – pushed to the wayside a little bit. They didn't use the companions as much. I'm used to seeing the companions as an integral part of most of these adventures and helping them figure stuff out. But like his niece, she's pretty much set dressing throughout the majority of this movie. You don't see a whole lot out of her. And the granddaughter is, she's got some exposition. She drops some lines to help further the story on. But other than that, not a big part of it either. She also seems pretty oblivious to the situation there. And there's at one point where she's playing playing hide-and-seek, basically, yes. with Kira's character. And it's like, don't you understand what's going on here? What's wrong? Ah, <laughs> uh, the innocence of children, though. Is that what it was? <laughs> uh, but, yeah, Louise, the niece, just dressing. And it, it's not even romantic set dressing. There wasn't even a romance or, or any kind of romantic stuff going on between her and the cop. No. It just, it's just empty. I mean, it feels like she's pretty much there, so it didn't seem weird that the this old guy's running around with this little girl. <laughs> She's yeah. kind of like a buffer. That seems like that's about it. Yeah, yeah. I was watching the movie, and Brenda was in the other room, and she comes in and asks me to pause. And she's like, "What? why is it in all of these movies, these women just aren't very strong, and you're okay with that? <laughs> it's like, well, I'm really not, but you know, product of the time and all that. Yeah, but you still watch them. It's like, well, yeah, because I love them. Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> in that defense, in the modern Doctor Who, the female companions are much stronger. Yeah. So. Well, one of them had a spinoff, didn't they? Uh, yeah. Sarah Jane had her own spinoff for a while, Sarah Jane Adventures, mm-hmm. until she sadly passed away, which was actually pretty good, too, and it was geared more toward uh, – they went back to more of the uh, for children feel for things, but it was pretty fun. That's kind of how Doctor Who started, right? It was yeah. aimed at a younger audience. Right. And I feel like there are some moments in this film, even though even though it's pretty heavy, 
where they're wanting to not leave the kids behind. <laughs> yeah, yes. The biggest standout for me is when our two members of the rebellion sneak into the base with the roboticized humans and trying to blend in. <laughs> because they're doing all their goofy stuff, trying to match their moves and getting their food, things like that. And that's when you get your crazy jazz score coming in that makes it sound zany. Zany is a good way to put it. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. That was, uh, that was something. Yes, it was. <laughs> you know, no, I'm the soundtrack guy. Normally, I really... I don't know. <laughs> this one, it was only one guy. I was surprised to find out that the score was composed by just one person, Bill McGuffey, because it really feels like there were two types of scores here. Yeah, it was all over the place. It was all over the place. You have you know, this, the music, what little you hear at the very beginning is fine. And then the opening credits start and the opening theme is just all over the place. And then it gets back to more of a subtle, more subdued. And then every once in a while, something just kicks in. <laughs> yes. It's like, oh man. And here's Bernard Cribbin is trying to do some physical comedy with the Robomen. So let's really throw the music in there. <laughs> oh well. Good times. Even though it feels like they could have expanded this into a mini series, the overall story didn't have to be overly complicated. The Daleks are taking over. That's what they do, apparently. Yeah. And they are trying to drill into the center of the Earth. The metallic core. Good for them. Yeah. I can't remember now. I don't remember if they were going to use it to hijack the planet and turn it into a ship or something like that. There was, they had some big plan for the planet. Right. Yeah. And, and I was, <laughs> I, I'm no scientist, <laughs> <laughs> but I do remember an eighties cartoon where the villains were trying to drill to the center of the earth to get something. And that cartoon taught me that if you do that, the earth is just going to break apart. Yes. That's what I thought, too. It's not going to hold on to its structural integrity and it'll shatter. <laughs> but let's not, make, let's not forget the fact that once we get into the uh, Daleks' base and we see their big plan for tapping into the metallic core of the Earth, as they found a, fra uh, like a fissure or something like that in the core, and they had a bomb they were going to drop in there, but that bomb looks pretty much just like a fat Dalek. I did appreciate, speaking of which, I did appreciate the production design. <laughs> There's a segue for you. Yeah. Uh, you know, I did like that. I did like that everything on the Dalek ship looked like it was designed to be used by the Daleks. It, it was created oh, by yeah. the Daleks. It had the Daleks sensibility. That bomb, you're right, it looks like a rounded off fat Dalek bomb. Yes. It just cracks me up, though, especially once we see what happens with the bomb for the, you know, the big climax of the film. It cracks me up to see the result of that climax of the film to think that was their big plan to tap into the metallic core of the earth. <laughs> this is a build a shaft, drop a bomb into it. Yes. Call it good. And when it goes off someplace other than the metallic core of the earth, it knocks some dust and rocks around and that's about it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So are there any story beats or elements that you wanted to talk about? Anything that really struck out for you that you wanted to discuss on the show as far as like a typical doctor who story this one felt really kind of dry throughout most of it as far as the plot goes it was i mean most doctor who episodes are a whole lot of the doctor running around running out of time trying to find something at the last minute and a lot of chaos going on but usually that's packed into like you know 45 minutes of tv okay so here when you stretch it out to a movie length it 
really kind of, to me, it kind of shows its faults because there's parts of this movie where there's seems like there's not a whole lot going on. There are some stretches there where it just feels a little empty. And I just think that I think that's the product of them trying to spread this out into a movie. Like you said, if they with as much as they packed in here, if they stretched out into a miniseries and they're running in the hour long chunks, I think it probably would have fared a lot better. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. The story itself is based on an original Doctor Who story of one of the first Doctors, I believe, if, yes. I'm, if I'm reading my, my research correctly, that it's based on a William Hartnell right. story. So the story itself was somewhat familiar, and they could have done a little bit more, packed a little bit more in here or there, or, or condensed it. I don't know. I, I felt like the story did kind of – I wasn't bored, but I did feel like – I think dry is the best way to put it. Yeah, I wasn't bored either, but uh, it definitely felt stretched. Yeah. Once we finally get to the mine, I felt like things started to pick up. But that was also when you're getting to the climax of the film, too. So. That's true. That's true. Which, if you're watching it on the TV show, you're, that's stuff. the stuff with the mine's going to come pop in. Because you figure you cut commercials out, you got about 45 minutes of TV shows, and that mine stuff's going to start popping in at like the 25-minute mark. That's true. Yeah, I could see that. And here in the movie, you're getting towards the end of the movie, so you've got quite a you've got probably 45 minutes before that that they're trying to fill up. Mm-hmm. I have to remember to always have a comb with me. <laughs> yes, because apparently you can pick magnetic locks with a comb. Who to thunk? As well as looking fabulous, <laughs> which is very important. <laughs> Unless it's Daleks that's imprisoned you, then you're probably better off not using it because it's some sort of intelligence test to see if you can get out, which just seemed very. <laughs> yes. You've passed the intelligence test. Now we will robotize you. <laughs> That's a funny thing, too, because the, the these, these Daleks did not seem to be all that familiar with Doctor Who. Yeah, it sounds like in the series they would consider him kind of an arch nemesis. Right? But if the yes. Doctor showed up, it was like, oh, shit. Exactly. They That's like their sole focus is to put an end to the Doctor. When these movies came out, I'm not familiar enough with the with the classic Who to know when these movies came out if he was at that state in the TV series or not. What the relationship was at that point, right? I mean, Doctor Who knew what Daleks were, but then in the previous film, he encountered them as well. So, right, but like I said too, there's also different sects of uh, Daleks, you know, different factions and things like that. So it's possible they could be one that ever encountered him. I mentioned earlier that I really liked a particular shot where the Daleks felt like a real threat to me. And it's a shot, it's a scene that culminates with one of the humans, one of the people, I guess, selling Doctor Who out to the Daleks and then realizing that the Daleks don't really have any use for him after that. So he Mm -hmm. hides in a building and all the Daleks surround him. And destroy the building with their little gas jets. Yes. I loved that shot. And I wasn't 100% sure why that particular shot resonated with me so much. This film was shot in Technoscope, which Mm -hmm. is something that the film companies were doing back then to try to compete with television. To get people into the theater instead (laughs) of staying at home and watching the small screen. Right. And this film, I feel like, really took advantage of that scope. You know, you look at... 60s and 50s television from the UK, and it's all very small on a set. Yeah, and Technoscope is kind of like the 
one of the early incarnations of widescreen were essentially, wasn't it? Right. So yeah, you got, they do use that very well. You got a lot of extra stuff going on in the background. There may not be things that are super big or exciting, but there's a lot of stuff going on there that draws your eye. Yeah, no, it's, and it's huge. There are huge swaths of just stuff happening with the UFOs flying, all the Daleks surrounding that house, uh, the yeah. mindset, the bombed out London location. It all looked really good and, and wide and impressive to me. And then to have all those Daleks doing the same thing was just terrifying. I have to ask about the gas thing. You said they don't have the gas and they have lasers in the You're correct current show, which is probably for the best because I felt the gas was a little silly. Yeah, it was a little silly. And it's much more satisfying for an effect-wise in the modern incarnation because you see the laser come out. They hit the person. They kind of flash a little bit. You see a, a bit of an X-ray shot of their skeleton and they disappear. Okay. It feels a lot more fatal in the modern incarnation than it does with the gas jets hitting them and they fall over. Probably cheaper, though, to just pack them full yes. of fire extinguishers <laughs> and call it good, right? Right. At the same time, though, I don't know how the weapons on the Daleks have evolved over the series either. Maybe okay. that was standard back then. I don't know. Okay. But look-wise, everything looks the same. So, I mean, that's kind of cool to see how iconic that turned out to be. I did like that, and I like the humans – and the Robomen, basically, uprising against the Daleks. Yeah. That was pretty cool. And to see the Daleks coming apart in different ways, uh-huh. that was exciting for me. It's like, yeah, get them, you know? <laughs> yeah. It did crack me up, though, that uh, all it took for the Robomen to turn against the Daleks was the doctor grabbing the microphone and saying, attack the Daleks. This command cannot be countermanded. <laughs> <laughs> they all throw off their helmets and go to town. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> well, he said. <laughs> he had the microphone. <laughs> oh, boy. You'd think if the Daleks were smart enough to turn these humans into roboticized humans that they'd have something built in to prevent that, but, you know. Something. Some kind of clearance code or something like that <laughs> to be able to take control. Some sort of, like, hidden fourth directive like RoboCop? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did like that, and I did like seeing the rope, the Daleks come apart. I like them finally just doing what I would want to do to the Daleks to begin with and just push them over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was a couple of sit, uh, moments of that where you see somebody just run by and shove one over, and it was pretty hilarious. Does that work in the show? No, not usually, because they can fly and levitate and all sorts of stuff, too. Oh, uh, okay. That, that makes a lot more sense, because I would imagine you just go up a couple of steps and they can't get to you. Yeah. Otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they made a big deal with show that one when they uh, found out that they could start levitating and stuff like that. It was pretty actually comical. So <laughs> nice. What did you think of the bombs? The mind bomb? The, no, the the little the bombs that they're throwing around that look like the end of like little rockets. Oh yeah, I don't know. They didn't really stand out to me to be honest. Yeah, it just seemed they needed something. Yeah, they were pretty forgettable. Yeah. Does Doctor Who in the show? tend to try to monologue his way out of being killed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because that, that happened in thing. this one. It just seemed, and again, it was Peter Cushing doing the, there's something in my mouth with me a second to clear it out before I try to convince you not to kill us. Yeah, though, that's pretty standard. Because the Doctor Who is a very hyper-intelligent being, he's going to try to outsmart them. And sometimes he'll do monologue like that to buy time while he's waiting for something else to happen or while he's trying to figure something out, or he's monologuing to get them to spill some secret and whatnot. It, that's pretty standard uh, Dr. Who tactic. Okay. 
I don't have any other notes here that I wanted to run by. Do you have anything else about the film? Uh, no, I think we've covered it pretty good. The only thing that stood out to me with Cushing's doctor, and mm-hmm. this is the last note I have on here too, he's pretty explainy as far as the doctor goes. The doctor in the modern incarnation, sometimes he'll try and explain stuff, but you have no idea what the hell he's talking about because it makes sense to him, but he's so smart it's not going to make sense to you. It's completely over your head. That doesn't happen <laughs> as much either, though, because he also usually the doctor has a plan in mind, and he enacts that plan whether you're in on it or not, and he just assumes you're going to catch up or he's going to take care of it himself. And this one, the doctor it tends to explain everything that he's doing. But that's because of the way that they're trying to market this movie to draw people into the universe. So it's part of the the way they kind of scaled it down to make it more universally acceptable or understandable, I guess. But okay. is my assumption. But that was like a big difference between this doctor and the other ones. And I don't. And that's not. I don't think that's Cushing's doing as him portraying the character. I think that's the way the character is written for him. At the very beginning, he does seem to dismiss Cribbins when he's explaining how the TARDIS worked. I, I had a hard time following that. Yeah. Time is like this and space is like that and da 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 da. Okay, understand, moving on. What? Yeah, well, <laughs> that that's fairly standard too cuz you made the joke at the beginning of the episode, but I mean at one point David Tennant explains time travel as it's timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly type of thing. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> That's not always made clear at all. So <laughs> I did like the end. I did like that they helped out Bernard Cribbins' character by giving him a, an opportunity to stop the, the criminals. But shouldn't he have seen himself there? I, I guess. <laughs> See, that's the Back to the Future fan in me. It's like, you, you should have seen yourself getting beaten. Uh. <laughs> yeah, that's the timey-wimey thing. <laughs> Speaking of, yeah. They do get liberal with their time travel at times in the Doctor Who series, too, but they've made the timey-wimey aspect of it so convoluted that, you know, you you get to a point where you're just like, oh, good. You never know. <laughs> Is that how that works? I mean, at one point in the slate, in, towards the end of Matt Smith's run, there was three doctors running around together. Three different doctors. And that's happened a lot over the series in the past, too, where you have multiple doctors, different doctors coming together, converging on a certain time period, coming from different time periods and working together over stuff. But it's all the same doctor. Yes. Sort of. But they're, you know, but it's the different regenerations. And they've done that with the modern era. I didn't realize they did that with like Smith and them. It was towards the end of Smith's run. And I think it was when uh, John Hurt's War Doctor came in. They had a special episode that was David Tennant, Matt Smith, and John Hurt. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. Eccleston. That was the other guy. Yes, Christopher Eccleston. Who, who only did one season, right? He only did one season, and I think he seems like he was kind of bitter about it. I've read that, that he's probably one of the guys that won't ever come back. Yeah, yeah, they tried to get him to come back during the, all the 50th anniversary special stuff when they were doing everything with all the past doctors and whatnot, and I don't think he wanted to be involved at all, so they just yeah. had a clip of him on screen, so. Well, that's a shame. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like Doctor Who is one of these epic things that, if I had the time, I'd go and, and watch all of them just to – it seems like something I'd enjoy. I love time travel stories. I like adventure. I like good sci-fi. I think you'd like it because – and I mean because of the way that they do the aliens and stuff. Because like I said before, Doctor Who, one of the fun things I enjoy is that you're always encountering different alien types and things like that. So you get kind of a Monster of the Week vibe from it. But it's fun if that's – if you're into the monsters, which we obviously are here on Monster Kid Radio. <laughs> yes, we are. Good, so good, I, I do think yeah. you would enjoy that aspect of it. 
And they have to, and they do some smart sci-fi as well. Some of it is, you know, them spewing science, but some of it seems, you know, comes across as pretty smart. And when they get into the intricacies of the way the doctor's plans are acting out and things like that. So it's got a broad spectrum to enjoy in there. Is this something I'd have to go back to the beginning and start from, or can I just dive in? You could probably pick one of the doctors that appealed to you and dive in there. I suggest starting out with Tenet because he was my favorite. Yeah. Yeah. He was great. Matt Smith was pretty good, too. I'm also enjoying uh, Peter Capaldi as well. But that's the cool thing, too, though, is because every time that they have a regeneration, they bring in a new actor to play the doctor, they always bring their own flavor to it. And they've got their own distinct personalities because the personalities change and everything during, you know, as you would expect with different characters. But they bring it into that's what I really love about the whole thing is because you have all these different characters playing the same character that they bring their own flavor to it. So they're always distinct. They've got their own personalities, things like that. Yeah, we'll see if I ever run out of movies to watch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I enjoy this movie for what it is. I, I think it's the better of the two Cushing Doctor Who films. The big joke that I always make, and I don't know how big of a joke it really is, is that as soon as they acknowledge Peter Cushing as part of the continuity, then I'll watch the TV series. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, every once in a while, somebody will post one of those, which doctor are you quizzes on Facebook? And then I'll always <laughs> go in and I'll Photoshop Peter Cushing's face into the mix and say, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was always disappointed, you know, before I'd seen these movies, I was always disappointed that he wasn't considered one of the, you know, part of the canon. But now that I've watched him, I, I understand why. Yeah. Is always portrayed in the pictures, and I've seen some amazing paintings of him as a serious-looking doctor. Uh-huh. But in the sh- in the movie, he just seems kind of like I said, like the opposite of a mad scientist, but kind of bumbling a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Very focused on his science for science. Yes, because he's doing science. <laughs> science. <laughs> yes. I-, I do recommend people check it out, especially if you're a Peter Cushing fan. Uh, yeah. If you're a fan of she. <laughs> it's one of those ones modern doctor who fans i don't know that all of them are going to get into it right if you're curious about exploring everything doctor who and you're a peter cushing fan i think it's something that you definitely need to watch i think peter cushing makes the film yeah. as, as does almost everything that he's in but peter cushing really makes the film even when they put him into a roboman costume which just yeah. looks he seems like he's uncomfortable on that thing <laughs> the way he's walking and running and his legs all splayed out. He just yeah. seems uncomfortable. But you get to see you know, Peter Cushing doing a character that's very unlike a number of other characters that we've seen him play. He's nothing like the Hammer Cushing in this. Right. He's very different, a different type of guy. Not one I necessarily want to hang out with because I, I would end up getting in trouble somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I would do something stupid and you wouldn't have the jazzy score to back me up to kind of make it funny. <laughs> Yeah, gotta love that score. Yeah. I do like the Daleks. I think the Rubber Men were okay. But overall, I think I would recommend the film, but just keep it separate from Doctor Who, Doctor spelled out, Doctor Who in your head, I guess, when you watch it. Is, is that yeah. fair? Yeah, I think so. I think it's one that you should watch if you're a Cushing fan and you like old sci-fi. Sure. Not so much, a, more so than if you're a diehard Doctor Who fan. Uh, if you're a monster kid, perhaps. It's a monster kid movie for sure. There you go. There you go. That's a good way to put it. I like that. It's yeah. good. How do you feel about your first appearance, your first real appearance on Monster Kid Radio, Casey? I feel good. I hope I lived up to your expectations, but I, you know, I had fun. I'll have to edit it, but yeah, no, it'll be fine. 
<laughs> You're gonna edit it down to a minute and thirty seconds. <laughs> Casey, did you like the movie? Yes. All right, thank you. Moving on. <laughs> well, we you t- would do that just to spite me. I, I would. I would just because it's fun. I do want to have you back on the show though, and we've talked before we settled on this one. We did talk a little bit about maybe doing some Bigfoot or Yeti type stuff. So we'll have you yes. on again in I the do future. Love me some big feet. Oh yes. Yes. See, that's part of the problem with me getting on uh, Monster Kid Radio, though, because Derek's put out so many of these shows and whatnot. Every time we sit there, we start talking about movies. Well, what about this one? Oh, I'm already doing that with Scott. Oh. Well, what about this movie? Oh, I'm already doing that with Scott. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I see. I see. Is that how it yeah. is? Yeah, that's uh, how it is. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> we know who your fa- who your favorite co-host is. Oh no, I have no favorites. <laughs> I have no favorites. Scott's committed to Planet of the Apes so for a while, so I think yeah. I think we're good. We can we can sneak in on something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know how long it'll take to get you back on the show, but if people want to hear you before then, Bloody Good Horror, Cinema yes. Fromage. And the Instamatic, which is on the Bloody Good Horror feed, which oh, is gonna be changing in the near future, but Oh, I was gonna ask you if the Instamatic was still going. Yes, that's still going. I'm actually recording the Instamatic later on this afternoon where we're gonna be talking about Michael Band's Thief. I don't know what that is. Yeah, it's an it's a crime movie from the eighties with James Conn, so So the Instamatic is about movies that are available for streaming only? Yes, or, uh, or- for specifically from Netflix Instant Watch. Okay, okay. And it's a spinoff from the Bloody Good Horror Show, and because it's on that Bloody Good Horror feed, we like uh, to give uh, listeners of that feed something different. We cover everything but horror movies that are available on Netflix Instant Watch. So it's been fun because I co-host that with uh, Charlie Gonzalez, who has been around a couple different podcasts over the years. We take turns trading off choosing movies, so we're kind of trying to surprise each other and get each other into things that we wouldn't typically watch. So it's been fun. Well, that's cool. No, I've met Charlie. He's a good guy, so that's cool. Yeah. And He's then, also like the only person you could look eye to eye. Yeah, yeah, and and that always makes me a little uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> it, it reminds me of how the rest of the world apparently views me when they stand next to me since I'm six four. <laughs> yeah, Charlie's like six eight or something. Yeah, so. yeah, that always yeah. Uh, <laughs> Nothing against Charlie, though. He's a hell of a nice guy. No, he's a great guy. He's, no, uh, he's, he's awesome. A, he's a big friend, friend of ours from the convention circuit. So. Exactly. Exactly. And then Bloody Good Horror is about all things horror. That's once a week. And then, uh, Yes, that's where we're covering everything uh, new that comes out theatrically. So you can hit us up there, Bloody Good Horror. And then Cinema Fromage is my new baby that I'm covering with. Uh, it's a show I put on with my lovely wife, Colleen. And we cover B-movies. And we have rules in place. It's got to be a movie that never saw a theatrical release, and it's got to be a movie that neither one of us have ever seen. Now, this isn't the first time you've podcast with your wife. In fact, I really loved the show that you used to do with her years ago, so it's awesome to have her back. Yeah, it, we have a lot of fun, too, because – and apparently from listening to feedback and stuff, people like it because we're both smart asses, especially towards each other, and we don't really pull any punches, so <laughs> – People seem to like their, our chemistry there. But, yeah, we have a lot of fun. Like uh, Our most recent episode that we put out the day before I recorded this episode is on uh, 1989's Intruder. It's a slasher from uh, Scott Spiegel that, that has uh, Sam Raimi and Ted Raimi in it. I was no. surprised when you posted that that you had never seen it. I've seen yeah. that. I had never seen that one before, so I was pretty excited to take it in, and I was pretty blown away by the, time, by the end of it. It was a good time. 
Right on. Well, there will be links to all of this in the show notes. And, of course, Casey is one of my co-hosts over on 1951 Down Place, along with Scott Morris, where we cover pretty much every Hammer film. Not in order, but we do tackle a lot of the Hammers together, and we'll continue doing that until we run out of Hammer films. Yeah. It's a good time. Yeah. Casey, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. (laughs) For finally doing this. Yeah, thanks for finally working me into your schedule, Derek. I, I'm not the one with like a thousand for podcasts going. Maybe it was really more on you, right? No. <laughs> I'm not going to own up to that one. <laughs> I may that. have more podcasts, but you have the much uh, wider and far-flung network of guests and well, collaborators. You're a worldly guy these days, Derek. Is that what that is? Yes. <laughs> well, thanks for slumming it with me. Ah, no problem. Thanks for <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for letting me slum it with you. <laughs> Casey went through all the different podcasts that he's involved with. But if you weren't taking notes, monsterkidradio.net is where you're going to find show notes to this episode. And you'll be able to see links to all of his different podcast projects. Go follow those. Or just join him and me and Scott Morris over at 1951 Down Place once a month where we talk about Hammer films. I can transplant his brain. If I don't, it'll die through lack of oxygen. In his nightmare mind, one more horror, one last horrendous act. Frankenstein must be destroyed. For God's sake, go away! Please! Frankenstein must be destroyed. Peter Cushing, Veronica Carlson. Frankenstein must be destroyed. This picture has been rated M, suggested for mature audiences. When she awakens, she'll discover that her demons are very real. They mean to destroy her. Whatever happens, she mustn't lose her head. Stevens and Dean Jones, two young people in love, full of fun and gaiety, the joy of living. But now she must return to the dark house. The gleaming blade has claimed one victim already. Soon there'll be two on a guillotine. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Again, big thanks to Casey for appearing on the show. It really was a good time, and I waited way too long to make it happen. So, Casey, we got to have you come back at some time in the relatively near future. Anyway, we'll have you back. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Now, if you want to know anything about Monster Kid Radio between episodes of the show, head over to monsterkidradio.net. This is where you're going to find links to everything we've got going on. With the podcast, we have links to everything that we talk about in every episode of Monster Kid Radio. We also have our contact information. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And we have a voicemail line. It's 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. We also have a link to our Patreon page where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and help support the show financially. 
Monster Kid Radio doesn't do advertising. We don't do anything like that. We rely on the patronage of our listeners to help keep Dr. Frankenstein's equipment running. So thank you to everybody who's become a patron of Monster Kid Radio. And once a month, if you support the show at the AIP level or higher, and that's just $2 a month, you're going to get mentioned in what's happening right now. The following patrons are executive producers of Monster Kid Radio, so special thanks to Justin Giallo, Mike Tatino, Mitch Gonzalez, Tom and Eileen, Andy Campbell, Tracy and Scott Morris, Joseph Perry, Frank Schildener, Stephen Turner, and the folks over at Dorado Films. Thanks to you, we were able to keep the show going another month. And thanks to all the other patrons of the show as well. And thank you for just listening and downloading the show, helping to boost our stats, our relevancy when it comes to the listings of Monster Kid Radio in the iTunes store. If you use iTunes, the best way you can help out Monster Kid Radio is just shooting us a review. If you're a Facebook user, if you could share the posts announcing the episodes. If you're a Twitter user, retweet the tweets mentioning new episodes of Monster Kid Radio, just helping to spread the word helps us, brings more monster kids to the fold. And really, that's the whole reason why I podcast, is I like to try to find my tribe. Finding people like you who enjoy these movies as much as I do. Would love to bring more of us together. It just makes for a richer experience for all of us. So thank you again for all of your support. Next week on Monster Kid Radio, in addition to covering some of the feedback that's been coming in, I want to go back to the 40s. We're going to talk about 1943's The Return of the Vampire, starring... One of the patron saints of Monster Kid Radio, Bela Lugosi. This is one of my favorite Monster Mash films. This is one of my favorite Bela Lugosi films. And I'm really looking forward to sharing the mic with fellow Monster Kid, Ron Nelson. He and I had a great conversation about the return of the vampire. And I think you're going to dig it. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Dawn of the Living Finks. That belongs to the band Boss Fink. It appears on their new album, RPM. You can find out about them at their Facebook page, facebook.com slash bossfink. Or go to DoubleCrownRecords.com, look up the album, and that's where you can buy it for yourself. It's a great album, 15 songs on one CD, fun surf, fuzz, and reverb music. It's a blast. I think you're going to enjoy it. I'm Derek M. Cook. Thank you for listening to the show. Talk to everybody next week. (laughs) 